Welcome back to the Dogtown Podcast. My name is Robbie, and I am very, very excited to have Adam Caress on the show today. Um, I was very happy to have reached out to Adam and to hear that he was down to come on the Dogtown Podcast after reading his book, um, The Day Alternative Music Died, which is, I will go on record as saying this is my favorite book. Um, this, it's, it's number one now. And so I'm so happy to be able to talk to you, Adam. Um, yeah. So thanks for, thanks for coming on the podcast. Sure. Sure. Happy to be here. Definitely. So, um, some background about this book. One, if you are listening in Grand Rapids and part of our local scene here, it's definitely at the library. So go check it out. It's at the main branch. Um, and also it's on Amazon. You can just get it wherever you get books, but it's a great, it, it's it's been very eye-opening for me and especially i think it will be for a lot of any other musicians who have who really take the history of of rock music seriously and, and who's for me the, these songs and these artists inform the way that i see the world and the kind of the way that you see yourself by extension and to look back on, you know, the history of, of these artists and the history of the way that industry forces and the way that commercial and artistic forces played into the stories that that are told about the history of rock and roll, it really can change a lot for you. And that's what it did for me. And so um, the subtitle or the um, I don't know what you call it, the, the like second title of it is uh, Dylan Zeppelin, Punk Glam, Alt, Majors, Minors. Indies and the struggle between art and money for the soul of rock and um, and yeah and so that's a lot of what is covered is this this tension between art and money let me read um, a little bit from the the first paragraph on the back says a lot about kind of a, a really good overview I thought um, since the mid 1960s rocks music rock music's creative pendulum has been swinging back and forth between artistic and commercial aspirations during that time what has made a rock a uniquely important musical genre has been its potential to be both artistically substantive and commercially popular at the same time or put another way rock music has both the potential to have something to say and the potential for what it has to say to be heard by the masses However, the marriage between goals as divergent as art and money has come with inevitable tensions. Um, and that's if you've listened to this podcast for any length of time, you know that that is the precise topic of every episode that we talk about is just these tensions um, and how as musicians in 2020 or 2021, whenever you're listening, that um, these tensions of how how we go about it now what's it's such a different world to try to navigate and um yeah so i'm so so excited to have you on adam to talk about these things in person well uh, thanks for having me i'm i'm excited to be here i mean i i love getting the kinds of responses to my book like you um had expressed to me in the email and and now too i mean i really hope the book would inspire people to think creatively to be um uh, to be inspired, uh, artistically. So, uh, yeah. thanks so much for, uh, for, uh, getting that out of it. <laughs> was yes. intended, you know, definitely, definitely. So let's start by, um, just give me a little bit of, of background on yourself because, um, on the, I'm reading here, um, on the bio, the little bio on the back of the book, it says that you've been, um, you've been working in music for, for a long time, over 20 years. 
working in the music industry as a performer, recording artist, booking agent, talent buyer, writer, editor. Um, and now you are a professor at of music industry at University of New Haven, Connecticut. So that is a huge list of, of different titles. So tell me about kind of the the story behind that. You, did you start in a band? Are you in a band now? Where, where? Um, yeah, how did that story come about? Well, I, I mean, I've always been a huge fan of music, and uh, it really wasn't until I was in college that I started um, playing in bands and stuff. And so I, I did that, and um, for about 10 years or so, I was in a band uh, that was based in Boston um, called The Troubadours, okay. and was in that band for 10 years or so, um, got to play you know hundreds and hundreds of shows and make some records and it was great and really enjoyed that time and that uh, then uh, moved over to um, to kind of the business side of the industry and uh, started managing um, live music venues for another uh, 10 years or so and then um, in 2015 um, I started teaching part-time at first um, at a school in North Carolina outside of Asheville, um, uh, teaching in their music business program, and then I'm, I'm now teaching full-time. I'm teaching at, at the University of New Haven in, uh, in Connecticut, um, teaching in their music industry program, which is uh, fantastic. I really, really enjoy it. Um, and along the way, I've done other things. I've, uh, I wrote this book, um, about which is called the day alternative music died but as you know from reading it it spans kind of beyond mm-hmm. you know just like the alternative music era um yeah. f- before and after but um mm-hmm. and i edited an online music magazine called mule variations for a while and got to write a lot about music and review things mm-hmm. and uh um write a bunch of articles and it was actually one of those articles that got picked up i got signed by an agent to write to expand into a book which was i'd written an article called the day alternative music died and then um uh took that idea and uh expanded it into a book um which was uh which was a lot of fun i really really i mean i i really enjoyed doing the research for it Mm -hmm. i learned a lot in the process um oh i bet i had enough experience that i kind of knew the places to look i think that's kind of half the battle a lot of times oh yeah where you want to go where you want to look and but i you know in in diving into that subject I, I i really learned a lot and uh which i which i now you know i teach a class that's called the history of rock and i've been teaching oh, wow. some variant of that class for the last uh five or six years so wow. um uh so it's, it's so it informs that too it's I, what i love about it the most is i think that it's i think that i have seen probably 300 like different episodes or documentaries or articles entitled the history of rock you know what i mean like these yeah, are the yeah. things that my parents would buy me for christmas when i was in junior high or whatever like oh the history of rock and you always hear a lot of the same kind of mythologizing about the same bands mm-hmm. and um you hear the same story over and over and and you kind of just grow up with it of like oh like there was nothing and then there was elvis and then elvis made the beatles and then the beatles led to zeppelin and then whatever and then the 80s happened and now we're here you know what i mean it's like yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's the you kind of metabolize a lot of those stories and then reading your book is like oh my gosh it's there's so much more and there's so much more behind the scenes and it, a lot of these 
it, it's kind of like giving me a step back at the, at this story arc that I've always kind of taken for granted. Um, a, like a bird's eye view of this story arc and seeing different forces that have like led to me hearing that, that story arc, you know what I mean? Sure. Sure. I mean, I think that was a lot of the motivation for writing the book was that there was stuff that was left out of the traditional narrative. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and so, and I mean, there's even a chapter in the book devoted to, you know, it's called like rock mythology or whatever that mm-hmm. talks about kind of the, how and why that happened and why the narratives exist the way they do. Exactly. Um, Which was, that was super like illuminating for me because I was reading that and I was thinking to myself, this, this is exactly why I was exposed to the stories that I was exposed to when I was a ninth grader learning about music. Do you know what I mean? This is exactly why I, I digested those stories when it was in, you know, probably 2002 around the time of this, like, as you go into in the book, a a lot of mythologizing about the history of rock and roll for certain economic reasons. And it wasn't just, it wasn't just random, you know, that's, that's not a given that that the history of rock has to be mythologized in this way. It was, Uh there's a lot of these other forces at play. Um, yeah, so I've really appreciated that. Um, it's, it's so much to go into, like I could, I could right now go on a two hour long tangent with you about, about the mythology, <laughs> just the mythologizing chapter, you know what I sure, mean? Sure, sure. Um, but I want to, I want to start with, so, um, one aspect of this kind of history that I, that I thought was really, really interesting was looking back, um, at your, your choice to start the narrative, uh, is you, you chose to start it when Bob Dylan went electric. And I, um, and I love that because that's kind of a unique starting point. All of these, you know, the, the VH1 history of rock documentary or whatever that I normally would watch would usually say like, Oh, it starts with Elvis or Chuck Berry or whatever. You know what I mean? But, um, and you, you make a lot of, um, specific reasons and specific arguments why you started with Bob Dylan going electric. Um, and how that was a moment where substantive art, Dylan's substantive art, his his poeticism was met with rock and roll in this certain way. And um, in that that mixture was so revolutionary at the time. And I didn't I didn't realize how, you know, what I mean, from such a remove, it was hard for me to realize how revolutionary it was to to take rock music and to treat it with substantive artistry the way that Dylan did. You know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. And so the looking back on that, it was really cool to look back and see, wow, this was a huge, and like particularly the album, um, Bringing It All Back Home, I think it's called. Uh, yep. Love, and so this got me to dive back into that album, which I absolutely love. Um, and the to listen to it, it gives, it gives you a new light to listen to it in. And um, the effects of that were so far reaching and it was it was cool to see that the revolutionariness of it and the same when you go into um, punk and alternative uh, bands like The Clash, U2, R.E.M., um, even in all these different ways, different ways that people have been very revolutionary with music at different times. Um, uh-huh. And so this this one of the things leading to my first question, um, this really got me thinking about different times when people were being just prolific and um, revolutionary with their with their music and sometimes currently sometimes I feel down because I 
I read this thing recently where somebody said that the the 20th century was for innovations and the 21st century is for imitating those innovations on social media and YouTube. And I was like, that just hit too close to home where I was like, oh no, that's, if that's true, that's so sad. Um, and then I see a lot of bands that kind of like reaffirm that. And I'm like, oh no, I hope that that's not true. I hope that there's people still like creating and, and revolutionary and, and doing something completely different. Um, so yeah. So, so, at, so there's a part of me that, that is scared that, that that's the case and that, we're just like doomed to a 21st century of like covers for the rest of our century. But then there's a part of me that's like, I know that that's not true. I know that there's always artists and musicians creating. And I, and you know, I see that in the studio all the time. And um, it's, it's just something you have to just kind of remember and cling to those people who are, you know, doing that type of innovation. And so I wanted to ask you, what type of artists or genres do you see doing that type of innovation right now or recently in the past 10 years? Who is kind of, doing the you know the the work of bob dylan revolutionizing or the clash or fugazi or whoever who's doing that work now in your opinion well i i just to go back just to clarify a little bit with the with the way you frame it um with with bob dylan and stuff i i I think that the reason my book started there because i i had a i writing a history of rock in which you want to get into kind of detail that I wanted to get into, you can't cover the whole history of rock. I mean, obviously rock music started before Bob Dylan and there's all kinds of interesting and cool stuff that happened. What was interesting about that particular time was that it would introduce it. It introduced Bob Dylan kind of introduced this aspiration Mm -hmm. to our artist, uh, to, to artistic, um, to creating art into the, Mm -hmm. into the form. Um, so there was this. The, so ever since Bob Dylan, there've been these competing aspirations. It, it was already had commercial aspirations, right? right? Like right. all this stuff. Like early rock music really wanted to be commercially popular. Um, and even though a lot of that early stuff, there were you know artistic elements to it. It wasn't a conscious aspiration of those artists, right? Right. So right. Bob Dylan like, kind uh, of. In- you say oh, like yeah, Elv- you say like Elvis. Elvis want, wanted to be in show business. Chuck Berry wanted mm-hmm. to be in show business. And that was completely, that was expected and that was not questioned. But Bob Dylan added in this other aspiration. Right. And so that everybody since then has been judged by different criteria, right? right like right, people right. didn't expect, no one, I mean, if Elvis had come along 10 years later, maybe he would have done the same thing, but right. he didn't. And he, he existed in a certain time and place. And Chuck Berry, the same thing. It's like, they were aspiring to be popular entertainers. That was really all that was expected. And Bob Dylan introduced this new aspiration. And since we've kind of expected that of, of artists, right? Like right, the, right. you expect them to, you hold them to a different standard. Right. Um, and so, but it, it introduced the book is really, like you say, it's about these tensions between artistic aspirations and commercial aspirations. Mm-hmm. And there really wasn't any tension before Bob Dylan. Right. So right. that's why it starts there. Um, uh, but yeah, to, to, to your question, um, you know, what, what types of innovations are, are going on right now? Um, one thing I realized managing a music venue, and you probably, you know, get this, this same thing when you're dealing with um, bands and, and artists in the, in the way that you are, too, is just how much talent and innovation is out there. Yes, um, totally. You know, just everywhere. And it's just it's not just um, in these, uh, you know, super popular artists who happen to have innovations that catch on in the mainstream. I mean, there's just right. really cool stuff that's happening in these underground places all over the place. Right. And one thing I really miss about no longer being 
um, in music venues every night is I don't get to, you know, have that experience day after day. Right. right. Um, so it's, you kind of have to remind yourself, but you, it doesn't, it doesn't take much to remind you when you're there, you just how much yeah. cool music you come across. Right. Um, and so I think there are amazing, innovative artists all over the place that aren't necessarily in the news or at the top of the charts. Right. Um, and I think when Dylan was at his innovative peak, it was at a really unusual time where a guy like Dylan had a really large platform to influence the culture. Right. Um, it was unlikely then. It's even more unlikely now um, because the, the, the corporate music establishment really tries to weed those people out before they get a platform because mm. it, it, it threatens, you know, anything that's new or revolutionary kind of threatens whatever the existing business model is. So, but I mean, even so there are always these unlikely cases of people who are able to get a platform anyway. It's just rare that they do anything as revolutionary as Dylan did with his platform. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, and when people have spent their entire lives, cultivating a personal kind of brand identity, it can be really hard to do anything risky that may endanger that. So you used to see, you know, artists shy away from risk as they got older and were more invested in this brand they had created. I'm thinking of like artists like U2 or Springsteen or something who were really mm -hmm. vital and willing to take risks early in their careers, mm -hmm. but then kind of fell in love with being, you know, quote unquote U2 or quote unquote Bruce Springsteen. Right, I mean, yeah. I, I, I'm using these examples because like you get the sense like Bono really enjoys being Bono, right, right? Right. And Bruce Springsteen like loves being Bruce Springsteen. He's got a whole Broadway show where he just hits wow. and talks about being himself, you know? <laughs> like the idea that someone at that place in their career is going to like do take some risk that could fall flat that's going to endanger that um, is, you know, it's just kind of built in. Right. But I think what's what's harder now is that people are taught to cultivate a personal brand through social media, et cetera, mm -hmm. from such an early age that it's easy for people to get attached to their brands before they're even famous or anything, you know, oh my gosh, which is, is a so problem, this is which so is a problem true. for risk taste, risk taking in music in general, I it think. Is. Oh my gosh. Yeah. But, uh, but, but just in general, you know, I, I, I think that there, I, I don't know. Uh, I think that there's, I, I would push back against the. I think there's innovation happening all the time. I think there's really interesting art happening, um, being created. I think that it, it's just rare that you see it in the most commercial, most popular right. iterations of that form. I mean, there's like all kinds of really cool, like underground hip hop. And, you know, that's right. like really vital and there are these local scenes that exist. Um, and it's just, but it's not necessarily the stuff that makes it to the mainstream. You do get people who are iconoclasts in the mainstream, like a Kendrick Lamar, or whoever, you know, mm -hmm. that are, that, that kind of take some, that, that will take some risks, risks and, and go some innovative directions. And the same is true in rock music or, or anything. But right, yeah. I think that a lot of times the coolest stuff and the, is the, is the stuff that's not, that, that exists in, you know, either local scenes or underground scenes. Oh, totally. And yeah. I think it's, I think we have to, we've kind of been, um, we're, we tend to expect that that stuff's going to inevitably become popular and it doesn't. I think it takes some work to like really appreciate like what's happening right in front of you sometimes, you know? Yes, definitely. Oh, totally, totally. Um, I really was struck by your thing about personal brands and about how that's such a present thing for artists um, and musicians to, to like feel like we have to cultivate right now for our, mm -hmm. our social media presence or whatever. And, um, and I had never realized how much of a restrictor to creativity that can be. Um, 
and this another question that I had written down um, is is related to that. Uh, a, sure. huge, a huge theme of this book, like we have been talking about, is the tension between art and money that must be navigated by musicians. And um, I was watching this amazing PBS uh, documentary. Um, you've heard of Frontline. It's sure, uh, sure. a program on PBS. And there's a really good Frontline um, documentary about the attention economy. Um, mm-hmm. which talks about social media attention and how this is a type of currency, uh, frames it as type of currency for, for younger folks or younger performers or younger artists. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's just a really interesting way to think about it. And it, um, it got me thinking about how, how atten- the currency of attention fits into this tension between art and money. Um, so yeah, would you, would you speak to that in an era when, actual money money actual like cash is kind of very hard in a way for musicians to come by because there's no it's i mean for every every musician knows it's hard to come by money right i don't think i have to explain that um and um but attention is maybe this other type of currency that is that is creeping in and and um yeah how does how do you think that that um affects this tension between art and money well, as you may have guessed from the last couple of chapters of the book, I'm not super comfortable thinking of music and art, you know, primarily as commodities by which you attain money or by which you attain attention either. You know, um, mm-hmm. we're forced to treat them as such in our current culture, but I don't think it's a particularly natural way to think about art yes so like before you even like get into these kind of questions i mean i like to take a step back and get some perspective on kind of like what we're talking about i mean yeah yeah music and art have existed for thousands of years before there was any such thing as intellectual property Mm -hmm. or copyright law the idea of a song being owned by its writer is kind of a relatively new and slippery concept oh totally and and then i mean and then on top of that just this whole idea of the mass market economy is relatively new new too it really only achieved dominance in terms of like mass media in the last hundred years so you know so all i'm saying is that like there are other ways of seeing these things than the way that we see them here in 21st century america you know um so have you ever heard of a book um called the gift by lewis hyde no ring a bell at all no i haven't Um, it it was originally published um i think in the 80s and there are a lot of academic history or anthropology books out there about the concept of gift economies Mm -hmm. but uh, but hyde comes at it in kind of an in a more accessible way with an eye towards what the implications are for artists today but the idea is is that you know, there's this language, there are other ways, there are other languages and other ways to think of art outside of kind of the commercial sphere or the money sphere or the, as products, as, you know, commodities and that type of stuff. And he just goes through, you know, kind of, uh, some history of other cultures, um, you know, kind of uh, pre-commercial cultures where art was thought of primarily as a gift. I mean, we still use some of this, language when we talk you know you might say somebody who's got a real artistic talent is gifted right Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um but they took this all the way down the line where this was you know someone was gifted with a certain artistic talent they then would pass that along to their you know local community as a gift as well the whole thing was thought of as a gift and wasn't thought of as 
owned by a particular person. It was thought of as a, if someone in your community had an artistic gift, well, that was a gift to your community as yes. well, you oh know? Oh gosh, yes. And people would be repaid, you know, the, the, the way that the, the system of ownership was different, the whole system of how people were repaid, mm-hmm. uh, you know, for the, for their gift. It wasn't like it, it was a, this person would be celebrated, but celebrated in terms of a community rather than in terms of the individual, you know, right. or in terms right. of this artistic thing that is like this beautiful gift or song or whatever it might be that exists is celebrated, not and the, there's not some expected remuneration in terms of money or attention or you know whatever it might be or right. likes on yeah. facebook or twitter or something right. or instagram you know it's it's um it was just a totally different way of thinking of it so um it's one of the things i try and you know when i talk to my students about you know it's just like let's yes we have to we live where we live and we live in the time in which we in we live and there are certain realities that we have to deal with but yeah. i think before we address those realities it's important to just like realize this isn't the way things have to be. And there's some unnatural things about trying to treat art yes. as a commodity. Oh you my know, God. It's, it's just, yeah. it doesn't really, uh, it feels a little unnatural, right? You right. know, yeah. I mean, even when like somebody's going around suing someone for using their thing, you know, if you, for copyright infringement or whatever, I, I, I get why they have to do that and it's their living. And, and it, it does feel just a little bit weird though. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that this this claim of ownership of something that maybe should be thought of as a gift rather than a than a product. Oh my gosh, yes, this is exactly why I knew this would be the best podcast we've ever done <laughs> because like these are all of the these are all of the themes that have really hit home from me from you know just in you know in the last like ten years of growing into like really my own understanding of the world. Um, a lot of these themes have kind of come up, and um, this is really what I care about. Sh- sharing and talking about is these completely different ways of seeing it and that um and especially i think your, your book was a real uh crystal a real like crystallization of a lot of these ideas and an articulation of them that i was so proud to run into because i it, it kind of gave words to these things that i was like yes i was feel i've been feeling that and i didn't know how to say it um and one speaking of this one one of the uh one of the quotes from the book that really um that really hit me hit home really hard um that is about this kind of reframing that you're talking about is um is okay you say according to dj and music blogger jace clayton what we saw in the 20th century was an anomalous blip when music had has had a physical form that was a very unusual in the course of human history and it will soon be unusual again Music has this intrinsic pull towards the dematerial, the unbuyable. It's a slippery, ghostly thing. And yeah, I, th- I love that quote. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and I was like, oh my gosh, this makes so much sense. Because I grew up in a time, and, you know, I was, uh, grew up in the, in the 90s and early 2000s, in a time where, you know, you think that, um, you think that, you know, making substantive art, like especially you, you mentioned in the beginning, like you, you grew up at a time where you grew up with a band like Nirvana. And so you get this impression that making art and kind of getting famous for it, um, is the most natural thing in the world. And so we're grown, we're growing up with these impressions that, Oh, that's completely natural. This is how it is. And, um, and then it's only kind of when you get a little bit for me, when I get older and kind of run into these different things and, um, it makes me realize, oh my gosh, that was such a, 
kind of such a blip in history and completely not the way it, it's not a given that it has to be like that at all. There's all these other ways of looking at it completely. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So, and that's, that's, yeah, this is exactly like what we try to do with the, with the Dogtown podcast every episode or with a lot of the stuff we do here is just, that's such a, I don't know, it's just such an important thing. And I'm just so into talking about this. Um, <laughs> <Cool>. <laughs> okay. So, um, so this, okay, this, I'm going to t- to say that, uh, a really important discussion that I'm super excited to talk about is the idea of a vocation of, um, you talk as music as a vocation in one chapter. There's a few other questions on my list before I get to that, but that's kind of like the grand finale as far as my okay. list of questions. Um, so, but for, for right now, I'm, I'm going to, um, bring it back to a thing that you're talking about on um, page 45 through 48 of this book, you're talking about the alternative music scene in the 80s. Um, loved this uh, this explanation of it. It got me into a lot of other really cool books, like um, Michael Azarad's, like, uh, Our Band Could Be Your Life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Epic book. Um, got me into all these cool bands. Um, absolutely loved it. Um, and so on... On page 45 through 48, you describe how alternative music was kind of like rock's middle class. Um, Could you explain how this situation worked in the 80s? And um, my real question is this. Is there a similar middle class in the music industry today or could there be? Um, Do we have to create that that middle class the way that DIY bands like Fugazi did in the 80s or 90s? Um, I would really like to be in that middle class if it could exist. <laughs> like, a, like a lot of musicians I know, I do not necessarily care about being rich or famous. I just want to play music and afford to live a simple life and pay my loans and maybe buy new guitar pedals once in a while. But yeah, this idea of a middle class uh, in the music industry sounds really cool. So what, yeah, start, first start by what was that like in the 80s? How did that work in the 80s? And then is there something similar today? Well, I think you can get some insight into the 80s by even just looking at, you know, today. I I think what we call indie music, you know, um, maybe 10 years ago was really, it was a really vibrant middle class in like the early 2000s. Mm, And I still think that, you know, independent record labels can be a great place to build a sustainable career. Mm -hmm. And I know even getting signed to an indie isn't the easiest thing in the world either, but it's certainly a much more realistic goal than being rich and famous and and a much healthier goal, I think, too. Mm but I mean, in the 80s, I think the main difference between the 80s and the 2000s was that the major record labels were still um, on some level patrons of the arts. Um, you still the, the, the major label, even the major labels were still run by a lot of times music people who, in a, while they had um, artists who were really, really popular, they also um signed artists who weren't necessarily going to be popular they were interested in in the labels themselves were interested in you know curating being cultural curators and and signing acts that weren't necessarily going to be you know super big pop stars Mm -hmm. and so i think that was the big difference then i i think the the major labels have constricted and consolidated to the point where they're less interested in doing that now i think that's just their financial reality Mm -hmm. um so most of that um, happens through independent labels. And there are independent labels. I mean, when you say an indie label, that could mean anything from like, you know, 
two guys in, in their basement who, you know, run a label to, mm-hmm. you know, bigger independent labels like Merge or, you know, like some of these some of these more iconic indie labels um, that exist around the country um, that, that we would have, you know, that, that we associate with some of the acts that we listen to. There's a whole, you know, range of um, indie labels, but I think that in terms of finding a place where there's a sustainable career that isn't built um you know, being rich and famous, I think I think that's a great place to look now. Mm-hmm. You know, I, yeah. I I think that I still think that those independent labels exist, um, and it's a it's a way it's a, it's a somewhere between trying to make it on your own in a DIY um, situation, which I think can happen. Right. And you have these odd cases where somebody will catch on, or they have a video that goes viral, or something that happens where they can kind of propel themselves into a sustainable career. But I think it's um, having the support of a label that is interested in um, supporting um, music and good music um, can be really helpful as far as an artist having a sustainable career too. Right, right, right. Definitely. I think the indie, I mean, I think the indie, the indie scene as we saw it in the early 2000s and to some extent exists, still exists today I mean, it really is a middle class where there are artists who can have sustainable careers without having to worry or even aspire to rock stardom. You know, right, so I, yeah. I think that that's how I would define. It. I think that was what was happening in the eighties too. Right. Yeah. I think you had the, the alternative scene. Um, even though some of those acts eventually became, you know, really commercially successful, I don't think. Um, that was necessarily their goal, and a lot of them had, you know, long, sustainable careers prior to that happening. You know, like right. an REM that was touring around for years and years, and um, right. prior to prior to making it big. And it seems, yeah, like you like you mentioned before, it seems like that is kind of a a healthier like dream, a healthier aim, in a way, like to um, especially for your art because it, that it's an aim where there's so much more artistic artistic um, freedom there. Right. Sure. Yeah. Um, definitely. So the um, another thing that I that I was really interested about, um, kind of moving forward a, a couple decades was uh, when you got into like the early two thousands and talking about um, about TRL MTV entities like this and about how there was a huge consolidation of a lot of corporate power in the um, throughout the nineties and. Um, into the late 90s or whatever and a lot of that resulted in huge entities um, I don't know was Viacom the the big entity that owned or was it owned by Time Warner or something Um, those were at that time separate like Viacom but Viacom had like MTV um, under under its uh, thing and Time Warner was a separate thing another huge huge you know media conglomerate Mm-hmm. And so you go into talking about um, about all the, the ways that the, these huge media conglomerates then changed the way that uh, that the face of, of popular music looked and the way that it, that that territory was laid out. Um, and I really liked you, you bring up this documentary Merchants of Cool a lot. And I went to um, watch that. It was very, very eye opening. Um, oh, yeah. Definitely took me back to that time period. And being like, oh my gosh, like just seeing it from the remove of, of whatever 15 years it has been since then, or maybe more like, it's just like, oh my gosh, this was things like TRL, these things were so manufactured 
there's such a manufacturing of 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 cool and um there was a lot of the merchants of cool documentary talks about different um focus groups and people whose job it is to go and talk to teenagers and figure out what's cool and um it's very very interesting um and so so you talk about trl and how trl had an illusion of viewer choice an illusion of democracy but it was actually a, a very cultivated thing will you give a little a little kind of like explanation of how that worked just because you can articulate a lot better than I can, um, just give a, a little uh, a little explanation of that work, how that worked, and then I'll get into another part of this question. Sure, I mean, I, I, in the Merchants of Cool um, documentary, Ann Powers, who's a, a, a really um, interesting uh, voice of criticism, she's I think she's interviewed and is the one who talks about in, in that documentary how there's this illusion of um, of democracy on something like TRL, but the choices, you know. It's a very curated list of choices. Oh, you, you're not going to get on the TRL radar if you're an indie artist. You're not going to get on the TRL radar if you're a DIY artist. It's these you know major labels who have deals with MTV, um, and you know it, MTV really only looks to this very small group of people that they'll even put on there to be voted on. I mean, by the time TRL was big, I mean in the '80s, you know MTV played videos 24/7, mm-hmm. and by 2000, you know, after they had the real world and all these other reality shows and Tom Green or whatever else was going on yeah, at that right. time, you know, you, it was, you know, you only had like an hour of like free form videos a day. So that's a very small pool from which you're going to choose these total requests. Mm. I mean, the, the hour long thing, I mean, TRL was an hour long. So if you, you, you might only have like a, a very small thing. So it's, it's, it's like, I mean, Ann Powers uses the example of politics and I think it's very apt you know, like when we're voting for president, you can't just vote for anybody. It's a very curated thing. You have these political parties, which, you know, and similar to like major labels or whatever, that are choosing what we get to choose from. And so you don't have this wide field of things. It's a very narrow thing that's predetermined ahead of time mm-hmm, and, definitely. you know, weeds out all kinds of things that, you know, it doesn't want to include. So, right. And- um, yeah, and a huge um, illustration of this you talk about is Limp Biscuit and about how this band was a complete flop of that was not you know not organically like making any name for it, not organically gaining any popularity for good reason because the band sucked and um, the there there was a t- a ton of industry pressure or industry like strings getting pulled by Interscope Records and whatnot to make this, to manufacture this hype around this band. And, um, yeah, that's, that's, this is not something that we have to get into right now because your book lays it out perfectly. So just go and get the book and you'll, you'll hear this story. It's completely (laughs) intriguing. Um, really blows my mind because I did not know this about Limp Bizkit. You know what I mean? I grew up in uh, watching them and I was like, okay, they must be super popular. must be super good. People must be really freaking out about them. But it was a completely like manufactured thing where they were ushered into all these places because Interscope or whoever thought they would make a lot of money or they couldn't make a lot of money or whatever. And um, anyway, so there's, there's this manufactured populism. There's this manufactured democracy that's going on. And um, some people today would say Facebook and Instagram have taken care of that problem. Um, and some people may say that, you know, likes and shares and this type of thing makes makes that a non-issue because now things are truly democratic um, and et cetera, et cetera. My, my question is, would you agree with this um, and has manufactured hype or manufactured, popula- manufactured populism disappeared 
or has it just changed its mask? Well, I think um, all the algorithms that underlie Facebook and Spotify, et cetera, I mean, those are manipulated every day for commercial purposes. I mean, mm. that's the whole reason Facebook exists. Whenever a user logs onto Facebook, they're not consuming the product. They are the product. Right. You know, Facebook's whole business model is to sell the information about its users to corporations so they can market to them. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the, that, it's the same with Facebook. It's the same with Google or whatever. I mean, that's how the whole thing is oriented. So mm -hmm. once you're talking about it that way, I think it's hard to see anything particularly democratic about it. You know, I, I, these are, um, these are companies that have a, a profit motive and their goal is to, you know, Get as you know, have, get as much information on their users as possible, so they can sell them to corporations. And if that's your goal, you're going to create a certain type of platform that encourages people to ask certain to, to behave a certain sort of way. I mean, there's all these. I don't know if you've ever looked at some of the you know stuff about Facebook and the different tests they did. Like they would, you know, do tests on users where they you know tweak the algorithm so it was all like really negative stuff and it would put people in like depression and stuff. And they, they ended up having to stop do this. Cause I think, I mean, they were worried about somebody committing suicide because of these tests yeah, or whatever, but yeah. I mean, they have such enormous power behind the scenes. I to, to think of it in like democratic terms. Um, I don't think is really accurate. Right. So, um, and you know, Spotify is, is heading in that same direction. Um, at least people pay for Spotify. So there is at least a product you're paying for, right. but Spotify, you know, a lot of these playlists are curated by labels or curated by, you know, different, um, PR people and you can pay to get on a playlist if you want to. Mm -hmm. And so, and the algorithm favors major label artists because major labels are own half of, or not half, but a good percentage of Spotify is owned by the major label. So they have a wow. say. And they have priority and all these different things. So, you know, and, and so many people find new music on Spotify through playlists mm -hmm. and those playlists are not organic. They're curated, you know, right, they're curated yeah. and they're curated very often with very commercial purposes in mind. So mm. I don't think it's all bad. I mean, I, mean I, I think I don't think Spotify is like the worst thing ever, but I, I do think you have to like kind of take it with a grain of salt. And yeah. um, I think if you're aware that that's going on. Um, you can, you know, use it with open eyes. You know, I, I, for instance, I don't, I don't use typically Spotify playlists to, that's not how I find stuff on Spotify, but right. I mean, that's just me right. because I, I, I just trust certain aspects of it. So, right. Yeah. Um, I've noticed that I've noticed that a lot with my Spotify. Um, I used to use the, the discover weekly or the, um, recent release or whatever, um, playlist where they, they're like, okay, like these are artists that recent releases that we think that you'll like or whatever based on your, and a lot of them are, I'm like, how did you think I would like this? Um, yeah. and I don't know. And I, a lot of, the, I don't know. It's, um, it's very, I've just really grown to distrust that, that aspect of it. Well, you also don't want them to be too good or too like keyed into like what genre of music you might listen to more the most, because then it's like forces you over time into this bubble where right, you don't, yeah listen to stuff that's outside your comfort zone and you don't listen to stuff like, I mean, it's less organic than when you talk to a friend who yes. has some music taste that's similar to yours, but they might find something that might be, and then you're like, Oh, that's a really cool thing. I've never would have found that without you, you know, exactly. Whereas, exactly. whereas algorithms are, don't work that way. You know, they're, 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 they, they're, they're a combination that those algorithms on Spotify are a combination of what 
you know, it's like the Amazon, you bought this, so you might like this, exactly. you know, like type yeah. of thing. Mm-hmm. It's like that, but then it's coupled with this, you know, kind of new payola type of thing where the certain labels are paying to get stuff on those playlists. So yes. it might be because of the algorithm. It might be because someone paid to put it there. So I definitely noticed that for sure. Yeah. Um, definitely. Yeah. I've definitely noticed that. And I love what you said about, about finding, I have such a new, another, a new appreciation for finding music from friends now um, that now that there's a choice between finding it from friends or finding it from algorithms, I've gotten um, I, I can have a new appreciation from finding it for friends because I was I, I do a delivery. Um, I, I do. I, one of my day jobs is is doing delivery on uh, one day a week for a local vegan food company. And I get a lot of time to listen to music. Um, and so I had been listening to my Spotify release radar playlist and then i stopped into one of the health food stores that, that a good friend of mine works at and he's a great musician has a good taste in music and we were talking about music and he um and he gave me i was like what have you been listening to like, he gave me two albums that he'd been listening to and those were like the best albums i heard all day and i just rocked out to those the rest of the day i'm like this is so much better than anything else that that um that the algorithm was picking out for me um, well and and we're spoiled too because i mean like i, I mean i was spoiled like you know, you know, managing live music venues and being the talent buyer. So I was, I would get all this music that was sent to me, like you they want to play the play the club or whatever. Yeah. And so I was always just exposed to all this stuff that wasn't necessarily like what I would have chosen for myself, you know. Mm-hmm. But so I was just constantly exposed to this. It was great. I, I loved it. And you'd always find stuff that you liked, and you'd find stuff that you liked that wasn't necessarily in like a genre that you was your typical genre or whatever. Mm-hmm. And you probably get the same thing with people coming in to record at your studio. That is, it's not necessarily what you would have chosen to listen to, but exactly. because because exactly. you're it, it, because you, but you encounter it because of yourself. You know, I, 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 I so and I'll, I'll admit it made me lazy, like in the sense that like I just <laughs> had this constant flow for like ten years of like just new music coming at me every day, and so I, I've had mm-hmm. ever since I've left there, I've, I've, had, I've it's been harder for me to find new stuff, but um, yeah. but uh, I. That doesn't. I, I'm under no illusion that it's, that's not out there. You know that there's all kinds of cool stuff that I'm not seeing in whatever algorithm. Oh, totally, totally, definitely. Um, all right. So, so another question that I had is, um, while we're on the uh, topic of, of social media algorithms, all this type of stuff, this is something I've been thinking about. On page 164, there's a quote from Eddie Vedder, who's a singer from Pearl Jam, and he's talking about this Pearl Jam um, album called No Code. And you tell the story of how this album didn't perform as well commercially as their previous records. It's, it still sold a lot, um, but as compared to their previous records, it didn't sell as much. And that was because the band um, had chosen to limit the amount of commercial hype around the album. Um, they had made it a conscious decision to, to limit the amount of commercial hype around it. Um, and Eddie Vedder said this after um, commenting on, on the, the sales of the album. He said, I guess that what happened to us with this record shows that promotion really does matter, just like everybody told us. If you don't operate in that framework, which we don't, it's obvious that you won't sell as many records, and that's fine. We expected this to happen much sooner than it has. To us, it's about choices and lifestyles. Do you want to spend your time on the road and doing promotion, or do you want to spend your time making new music and living your life? At the end of the day, what is most important? To us, I'd like to think that it's the music and the quality of our lives. And I love that quote. Um, it just totally hit home. And and I, it made me really think about this other thing that I've been um, really considering lately with, with social media 
and about how we're, we're no longer expected to just be musicians. Um, we, uh, I've, I've heard it said, I forget who said it, but, um, but I've, I've, you know, seen it out there that, that now, now if we're a musician, we, we can't, we also have to learn to be the photographer of our band and the videographers and the, the promotional team. Um, and I'd love to make the choice to spend my time making new music and living my life. But sometimes it feels like no one will know about your shows or your new albums if you don't acquiesce and play the social media game. David Geffen told Kurt Cobain, I don't, um, this, this is actually in the book too. David Geffen told Kurt Cobain, don't think about the radio and don't pay attention to what anybody else says or thinks. Give us a record that you like and our job is to sell it. And that really, that was like um, really striking and it's, seems gloriously different than today's situation where it seems like a lot of us feel a ton of pressure to be our own social media hype team, be our own photographer. Um, we feel like we have to spend our time learning how to navigate these algorithms. Um, and we feel like we have to spend more time learning to navigate those algorithms than we spend learning how to navigate our instruments. Um, is this an inevitable reality of being a musician in a social media world or what? What would Eddie Vedder do in this situation? <laughs> well, I would say one of the main pieces of advice like that I tell my students, the ones who are aspiring musicians anyway, is, mm -hmm. to, is to find a manager, find an advocate. Uh -huh. um, in, in the first place, it's really hard to get from point A to point B in the music industry by yourself. Um, and the music history is full of examples of musicians who had a business advocate who helped them, especially getting started, whether it's, you know, even the, even these big acts that we don't, you know, like whether it's Brian Epstein for the Beatles or Albert Grossman for Bob Dylan, you, I mean, you have to be careful because they're the horror stories too, like Elvis and Colonel mm -hmm. Tom Parker. But I think it's really important to have that person. Um, and one benefit of that is that, and this goes to your question, is that that person can be the point person for your business, mm. which allows you to focus more on your art. Okay. That doesn't mean you don't contribute to your business or stay involved. You should do those things. You should be aware of what's going on, but you don't get consumed by it in the same way. You're not right. crafting Twitter posts 24 hours a day or right. brainstorming your in Instagram campaigns. Exactly. The primary, yeah, the primary responsibility for that can be kind of offloaded to someone else so that you can focus on what you should be focused on, which is your art. So, that person, whether it's a manager or advocate, it doesn't have to be like the top, you know, manager in the world. It can sometimes be, it can just be someone who's passionate about your music, who has time on their hands, you know, mm. who can, who can do some of this research for you or somebody who's got a friend or everybody has a friend who's like knows social media really well, you know, oh, yeah. um, like trying to find somebody who can be part of your team as an artist, you know? Um, and everybody needs kind of that support. And so I think finding people, especially a manager or somebody like that, who can be your primary advocate, but other people too, to be part of a team so that you can, I, I think that's really important. And it, it, I think it does get really daunting to try and do it on your own, that yes. you have to do everything. So if you can find somebody and it's, it, it's, you know, it's not easy. You're not going to find someone tomorrow, but if that can be like a real goal of yours, like, Hey, I'm going to do this for now, but. I'd like to find someone who I can, you know, having that be a goal so you can eventually offload some of that, um, the, the, that, that business, um, you know, just some of that business responsibility, I think is, is really important. Um, I think Eddie Vedder, I think I, I love 
um, that quote. And Eddie Vedder was in such an unusual position where his, you know, he had never, I mean, his first piece of music he ever released publicly made him a superstar, you know, like the other members of Pearl Jam had been in other bands and stuff like Mother Love Bone and Green River and all this different stuff that had been in the Seattle scene. He, he was, you know, surfing in, in um, San Diego gets the call to, you know, come join the band and they put out their first record and all of a sudden they're on the front of every magazine and all this different stuff. So, so he had to fight, you know, just from the get go against that whole corporate mechanism, you know? Uh And I, I, incidentally, I think the way he did that and how eloquent he has been over the years about that is really, really admirable. I think it's really, really Mm -hmm. rare to find somebody who, um, navigates it. But I, I think that, you know, and he, he's talked about it, that until he felt really alone in that, and he felt this tension between commerce and art and all this stuff. And it really wasn't until he found a mentor, um, which for him was Neil Young, um, who was able to kind of model how to do that. Somebody who'd had an independent career that was, you know, that was, uh, uh, commercially successful, but also managed to, you know, have artistic freedom and manage to not be beholden to these trappings of fame. Um, mm-hmm. Until he found that, he never really felt comfortable. And then he found someone, you know, that could be a mentor to him to model that. And then he felt he he started to feel more comfortable doing it. And now, and and Pearl Jam eventually found a way that works for them to do that. But I think it's really admirable. I don't think a lot of people even ask those questions. And I think a lot of people get consumed by the whole thing um, wow, yeah. d- before they even had a chance to figure out what's going on. I think Kurt Cobain is one of those people, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it, a lot of the, the book is kind of telling that, that story of, of kind of the, the way that that ends up playing out and uh, it's very, very illuminating. Um, I really loved your, your answer to this, to this question because it wasn't one that I was expecting, honestly. I just the idea of, of like getting other people in, in involved and in like working as a team and like and offloading it is something that completely checks out with my experience in these things because um some people might know this about how, how the dogtown works, um, but I don't I like getting consumed with social media is like a a problem for me. And I the only reason that we can like exist as an entity is because I can offload that onto Tito. Um, because I doing the creative part of it, doing the, um, all the editing, all the, the mixing and whatnot is, a is a full time kind of like creative, like pursuit. And then f- if I were to have the, the responsibility on my shoulders of posting everything and keeping up the social media accounts that it, it wouldn't, there's something about that that would sap the creative energy from me. And, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. and so that what you said totally checks out with my experience. And it's also a lot different than a lot of the commentary that I hear about it, because I feel like I hear a lot of, um, a lot of people answer this question in a way where they say, oh, you just have to learn to have balance. You just have to, um, remember to take some off days. And, and I feel like I hear that so much about just like, you know, just have some balance and have, and it's it's almost kind of cliche how much I hear that. And I don't think that that's necessarily the whole answer. I mean, obviously it's important to have balance. I'm not saying we shouldn't have balance. We have to have balance. But I think that a lot of times just, just kind of viewing it in that way is not enough. Um, and so, yeah, I really appreciate your, your, your input there about like, yeah, like, well, even, don't even, do it by yourself. even, w- yeah, even, even what you're talking about there with like Kurt Cobain, it's like this fantasy, like, Oh, just, 
do what you want. Our job is to sell it. Okay, wouldn't it be great if we had a major label telling us that? Right. It just doesn't have to operate on that scale. You can still you can still have people who help you out with business, and it doesn't have to be like they're, you know, um, booking Chicago Stadium. You know, you know what I mean? It's yeah, not, yeah, yeah. Like it, 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 it doesn't have to be like the the biggest thing in the world. It, right. it can be helping you um, with your social media account. It can be totally. helping you with some booking that you, you know, or it can be making some phone calls or keeping up with your, you, you know, like uh, with your email list or whatever it might mm-hmm. be that you're working yeah, with yeah. at a time, like really basic stuff that, that can still, if you're the only one doing it, be consuming. Even if you're not like a big time artist, mm-hmm. it can still be consuming. Yeah. And it's also can be addictive in a way that's not yes. necessarily helpful too. Exactly. You know, yes, you can yes. really get into building this, like my Twitter brand is this yes. kind of person. And then you like, you just get into it so much that, that you forget what kind of person you actually are. Because exactly. Like what's, what's the whole thing behind the brand? Like, why is this brand? Let's leave the branding to the branding people, you know? And yeah. I think there are people that yeah. like for me as an artist, you know, like, I think like it, it's not a given that because you're a good songwriter or a good singer or a good guitar player or something that, that you're necessarily gifted at marketing. You know, right, yeah. there are people who are good at these things and they not, they, it doesn't always, it's not always the same people. So yeah, I think totally. finding people in your sphere and orbit um, is really important to, I, to, to help you. I could not agree more. This makes total sense. And like, and I feel like this, that is the kind of insidious, um, the insidious danger of, of it is is that the it can be addicting in that way and this kind of consuming where it's not necessarily like all consuming where it's the like makes you have a nervous breakdown but it can be like subtly and insidiously consuming where it kind of just uh, like distracts you and addicts you to that portion of it and mm-hmm. um and it kind of can kind of sap this creativity and yeah that's Oh, and okay, here's another thing is that I, um, I remember the thing. So you were talking about how there's just because you're a musician or whatever does not mean that you're a good marketer does not mean that you're good at, at that aspect of it. And, and I think that a lot of us get down if we're not doing well on social media or whatever and feel bad as musicians, um, because maybe we're not good at the advertising part of it. And I think that hearing you separate those, it is really relieving in a sense where it's like, oh, okay, that that's right. I don't have to be good. That's not a reflection of, of me as a musician or whatever. My ability right, to, right. You know what I mean? Um, so I that was relieving to me to hear. I mean, I mean, you probably. I mean, you're like me. I mean, you you're around bands all the time and, and mm-hmm. artists. I mean, like there are some people who are like great musicians who are like uniquely bad at marketing, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. it's not just that. And some of the people that that we really. I mean, like I feel like there's somebody like like. Dylan was lucky because I feel like he was really good at image making and branding and stuff of himself. And, and like, there's people like that that are just good at that there, but there are other people who are, who aren't right. right. You know, who had to be kind of, um, that, that had to have help doing that. I, I don't think it's bad to ask for this, uh, right. bad yes. to ask for that. Um, totally. one thing I think, um, I don't know if this is the right place in the conversation to put it, but put it. I think local scenes are really, really important. I think yes. that the idea of, having a locality that where you have a scene where um, you're in community with other artists, that you're in community with venues and studios and people know each other. I think those are really great resources to have. Um, it sounds like you guys are involved in that scene in Grand Rapids, which Definitely. is really cool. Very and I think that, that I, I think that 
cultivating that so many great artists have come out of great scenes right, right. um yeah. and even like there's you know like in uh, uh i'm using famous band examples because they're the easiest but like okay. like in liverpool right like brian epstein didn't just manage the beatles he ma- managed other liverpool acts you know he, he he was like the manager for that scene you know and he got just the Beatles and he got, you know, Jerry and the pacemakers and a couple of other artists, you know, he was, and the Beatles obviously hit big. So that's what he's remembered for. But, but even the Beatles like played, like they played, I was just reading this thing the other day about the Beatles. They they played the Cavern Club in Liverpool 292 times. Oh my God. You know, like they, it wasn't like (laughs) they like went from, you know, nothing to being cute. Like, like they were, they've been a band, like uh, yeah. they've been playing together since 1957 and they didn't hit till, you know, 62, 63. So yeah. like even a band that you think of like that, like they, you know, and they came out of this scene, there was like a thing happening there. And that, and that's just, there's so many of the things like in the book, I talk about the Seattle scene yeah. and, but that's the case a lot of times. And sometimes that's all that ever happens, right? Like the, uh-huh. the, it never, like the Seattle scene went, you know, national and international and the Beatles went international. Sometimes that scene just is what it is and no one outside ever recognizes it. And that doesn't make it any less worthwhile or any less, uh, any less great. Um, You know, this is just, um, I don't know if you, well, I mentioned in the book, but I mean, the critic, uh, Lester Bangs, uh, who is uh, just one of my favorite um, music critics. He's just really, really interesting. I, I disagree with him all the time, but I always, you know, find him compelling even when I do. Uh-huh. But he, he, there was, he, he died um, when he was uh, too young, too young. He died in his thirties. And, um, but there was this thing that came out afterwards that I forget who wrote it, but it was, it was like Lester Bangs talking from heaven, you know? And he's oh, like, okay. He's like, man, here, like the music's kind of lame, you know, but, you know, it's, but everybody's kind of groovy. No one hates anything, which is kind of annoying because I like kind of hating stuff, you know. And, um, but he, he's like, he's like, man, like, I, I, I never knew it, but heaven was Detroit, Michigan, you know, oh, wow. like it was like this scene, like, you know, this, you know, like it's this idea that we don't appreciate it when it's happening because you're looking forward and hoping yes. it goes to something else and you lose the moment of where the magic when it's happening is, you know, yes, like some of those yeah. Beatles, if, if the Beatles had never made it big, there were probably some pretty like crazy cavern club shows that they just were on and the crowd was in yeah. and it was like a thing that maybe never even got replicated once they were playing stadiums. Right. Cause you can't, you know? Right, right, right. So I think there's something really beautiful about local locality and scenes coming uh-huh. together and people working together and knowing each other and collaborating with each other and supporting each other, whether it's in business or in art, you know, I think it's really, uh, I think it's really cool. I, I, I think people, because we're, you know, kind of conditioned to think of stardom as the, you know, you know, superstardom as the end goal, yeah. you kind of miss this, you kind of miss this. And you, and you, and, you, and I, when I look back on uh, my, you know, playing music, like uh, those are the things I remember these, this little club, you know, but there was a line out the door and there was a buzz happening and there was a connection with the, um, with the audience, you know, and, and everybody's just into it. And there's just these magical things that happen on stage and nobody knows about it. Right. Right, It's it's not written about anywhere. No one's going to be, but, but you know about it and you were there and you experienced that. I don't think any of that's incidental or not meaningful. I think it's, I think it's really meaningful. I think it's, I think it's where it's at, you know, that's as real as it gets, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. And I love, um, 
I love talking to you. I love talking to you because this is like, it's such, it's such a huge mind shift. Um, but it, it makes so much sense. It's, it's a, it's an, it's an entire paradigm shift because the, there's so many times in my younger self would have said, would have looked at something like that and, and seen a great show at the local club as like, Oh, that was great. A great stepping stone to like a, you know, maybe making it big. Do you know what I mean? And, um, just come a lot of my perspective growing up was completely tied into that narrative of like a great local show is great because it might great get you a great regional show. And then if it's a great regional show, it's great because it might get you a huge record deal. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And all these things are kind of subservient to this ultimate goal, ultimate goal of, of like, selling a ton of records which is like a weird like you're if you look at it it's like a capitalistic goal like selling records is the ultimate thing that you're doing and i think that talking to you and like the reading the book is kind of gets into a lot of more of like okay let's look at it really like what is what's it all about in from a bird's eye perspective what's it all about backing up you know what i mean Um, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so this is perfect because it brings me to my grand finale question um, when we we're talking that I talked about before, um, one of the points, um, that you mentioned in the book is, is music as a vocation. And, um, I really like the way that you described the, the kind of fall of this, of this kind of Goliath music industry paradigm as something that could be good for art. For instance, on page 285, you write for those who looked to rock music for its substantive artistry, for its potential to speak to them on a human level and to provide truths which illuminated their lives, it was possible that the entire rock star phenomenon had been a decidedly irrelevant and potentially destructive distraction. In this sense, the demise of the rock star culture could be seen as a positive sign for rock's creative future rather than a sign of its decline. So yeah, I, I love that. It really ties into everything that we've been talking about. And so will you explain a little bit of what, of your view of music as a vocation? Um, f- and for those of us musicians who are trying to make sense of where to go and trying to figure out what a music career even looks like right now, um, many of us, many of us only have only ever heard advice about how to pursue our future in terms of quote unquote career direction. Um, many of us have never even encountered the concept of a vocation. Um, so will you explain what this is and should we, um, un- this is, I don't, this is maybe not the right way to word it, but should we reconsider our plans of a music career and pursue a music vocation instead? Is that, is that how it works or is that not how it works? Well, the, the, the term vocation has a religious etymology. I mean, it had to do with someone being called by God into the priesthood or some other religious order. It's, it's used more broadly now to talk about someone who feels called or convicted to pursue a certain way of life or a career. And I think that kind of language is, is appropriate when we're talking about artists. I mean, mm-hmm. so many artists feel deeply compelled to create the art they create over and beyond any desire for you know financial compensation or fame. Right. getting laid or, you know, whatever it might be, other motivations that people have and are real. Um, but I think thinking about it in terms of like a vocation, it, it, it's a healthier way to look at it. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you, if you know, this is something you have to do. And I, and I certainly felt this way when I was making music. Um, 
I, I, this was something I felt compelled to do, then the financial or professional aspirations can be secondary. Yeah. And, you know, so, so that, so before anything else, I think artists need to do some soul searching and decide this is what they deeply want to do, what mm-hmm. they need to do, you know, apart from any financial rewards or adulation, because if you realize that what you really want is money and there's a lot there there are a lot of much easier ways to make money than in music right, right? i mean yeah, right. if you it, but if you have a gift and and there's that word again gift that you feel compelled to share mm-hmm. you know figure out what you want to say learn how to say it the best way you can and it just ha- so happens that having something compelling to say and being good at conveying it is going to be a huge advantage whenever career opportunities come across your path mm-hmm. you know um, so if you can be, you know, be the best you can be, cultivate your art, that's going to be a real advantage. And like I said, if you can outsource some of the business stuff, I think that's helpful. But I mean, I think if you if you decide this is something you really want to do and need to do and feel compelled to do, do it the best you can and really take it seriously. And that's going to that's going to be an advantage. Um uh, well, again, when I'm talking to my students about like what things can you do, you know, before, you know, as you're trying to just like get started, I mean, so much of it's outside of your control in terms of, you know, commercial stuff that one thing you can control is um, how much you work on what you're doing. You know, how, how much do you practice? How much do you find time to write? How much do you find time to, you know, to work on creative things? Because all of that is something that's in your control and is going to be a huge advantage. Right. If you are, if, if you're somebody that, if you can put together a show-stopping show, you're gonna. That's going to be an advantage whenever like these other opportunities come along. I think that that's where your energy can be like best spent. And 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 then, and the whole thing like we were just talking about. If those opportunities never come, that's the, the and that's not the end of what you're doing you can still have these magical yes. really in a in a more intimate environment yeah. um yeah. so i, I I, I still think the, the easiest way from getting overwhelmed by the financial concerns is to find someone else to focus on the business things for you. Again, that doesn't mean don't folk, don't pay attention to them. You should be aware of what's going on in your career. There's really, and I, I teach a whole introduction to music industry class where we go over these basics. This is what you should be aware of. These are ways you're going to get screwed, you know, financially by yeah. people. You know, you have to, you have to be aware of these things and you have to be paying attention to it, but you don't want to be consumed by it and you don't want to be addicted to it. You want to, um, you want to make room to, to really focus on the art. So, but I think that whole idea concept of vocation, the idea that there are people um, who really feel compelled to create and share music and art. I think that that's a reality. And I think um, if you're one of those people um, cultivate that, you know, I don't think it's, I don't think you have to, I don't think it's an either or proposition with your career. Mm -hmm. I think that I I just think it's a matter of priorities and, and, you know, like you said, you know, shifting the paradigm a bit. Mm -hmm. Um, totally. So that, that, so that that's what you're focusing on and that will always be an advantage career wise. It will always be an advantage to be better at what you're doing right? and to be more, be more deliberate about it. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And it's like, um, it, one of the great things about the book is that it, it kind of gave me the, the, this whole concept gave me a different way of looking at a lot of things and, um, and just having, I, I really like having that word vocation to, to kind of describe a different way of like, of looking, of looking at it. And, um, it, it is helpful for me 
because it um, it kind of helps me to it it helps recenter me in a certain different type of paradigm where where my um, like we we're talking about before where these things are not significant in so far as their significant career steps they can be significant on their own period end of sentence do you know what I mean exactly having yep. a great having a great night in the studio um, recording a band. Um, doing a video everybody's having fun there's you know there's these moments where there's like there's the take that was the song that was it and everybody in the room feels that everybody in the crew everybody in the band and it's like and in knowing that 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 can be it on its own is is a huge a huge thing and that it's like um one of the things that we say here at the studio is that is that we're in it for that and if we happen to press record and if a video happens to get made and published on social media, that's a great bonus. But we're in it for that moment right there. You know what I mean? And for thousands of years, that was all there was. There yeah. wasn't a record button. There right. wasn't oh a gosh, platform. Yes. There, wasn't a, there wasn't a commercial um, thing. That It was just that moment. And you lived it and you appreciated it as such because that's all there was, right? Yes. Totally. Um, and so this kind of gets into another, okay, one last little, one last thing. Um, just thinking about, about meaning and purpose is so tied to stories is what I kind of like am, am realizing after reading the book again. Um, and growing up, my perception of what a rock star pursue, pers- oh, oh, excuse me. Growing up, my perception of what a successful pursuit of music looked like was so influenced by a, by a story, an archetypical rock star story. Um, that story that you're nobody, you're sleeping in your car and then you get signed, you sell a ton of records and then you're somebody, then your life has meaning, then your story is an actual story. Do you know what I mean? And I feel like Mm -hmm. this, this story is consistently shoved down our throats and it's like, I feel like the most, like every, every rock kind of like, um, biopic is, is kind of, there's so many of them that are just this story. Like I just saw the queen. It's a, they're such bad formulas, aren't they? Yeah, it is. It is. Seriously. I mean, it's just, it's like even the, even the ones about artists I really like, they, they, they manage to turn their story into this formula. You know? Exactly. Just, oh my gosh. Yes. And it's like, um, yeah, it's so true. I saw like the one about queen is my most recent memory where I was watching it. And I'm like, this is so it's fitting into this formulaic thing so much that it's, it's a cliche. And, um, and anyways, then, uh, so that's your, we're, we're, f- there's so much of that cliched story. Um, and so I'm wondering if we could wrap up by, by talking about just a quick alternative narrative that a young, that a young musician might consider aspiring to, um, like if a young musician is sitting in the room thinking, I just have to get Instagram famous and then Sony will sign me and then I'll be famous the same way that, you know, queen got famous or whatever. Um, what alternative story would you give them after someone reads your book? It's clear that commercial aspirations and music are kind of superficial and that they're, that those focusing on those inspirations and those stories alone is such a, a short selling of the truly sen- transcendent power of like art and music and this true transcendent thing. Um, and it's, uh, but it remains that that's, that story of commercial success is the one that most of us know and the, the most of, one that most of us have been socialized with. And so, um, that story, and since stories do so much to inform how we engage with the world, um, let's, let's kind of like think of what alternative stories could be because when we, when we shed that commercial rock star story, what do we, re- what do we have to replace it with? Do you know what I mean? Um, and like, what is there to hope and to dream for? Um, 
Yeah. So how would you how would you go about that? Well, part of it is what we were just talking about about locality and and, and just like rather than trying to think of things that can be done elsewhere, you know, think of those connections that you have, those musical connections. Think of those mm-hmm. places that you, uh, those shows that you are playing rather than those shows you would aspire to play. Think about the, the people you know and the connections you have and all that. So I think, I think that's a big part of it. But I also think it's, you know, important to remember that everyone's life has meaning and value and dignity and it's not measured by fame it's not measured by success right you know and 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 realize that it's it's hard to find anyone and i mean anyone who's gone gone down that whole path of stardom and come away a better person for it or a happier person for it you know um and it can be really really lethal i mean not just to your physical life which of which there are tons of examples but to your soul and who you are i mean it's a corrupting force um, it, it doesn't mean it can't be resisted to very extent, various extents. I mean, we talked about some of those examples, like Eddie Vedder, I think, is a good example. But I think it's a shame that those who create this beautiful, fragile, transcendent things that enrich the world so greatly as their reward get such a brutal fate, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and it didn't used to be that way, at least not on this scale, you know? Um, but, you know, don't get, don't get me started on celebrity culture. I'll be here at 3 a.m. yelling about the abject inhumanity of British monarchy or something like that. (laughs) But, uh, you know, I I, I just think we have to move beyond celebrity culture and embrace the things that, um, you know, are, uh, that are are real. And I I think, and and recognize the things that are real in our lives and not be always looking over their shoulders at the next thing. Right, right, right. Totally. Um, This, this reminds me of this, um, of this movie Soul. Did you see this? It just came out. I haven't seen it yet. It's on my like playlist to watch, but yeah. I haven't seen it yet. Is it good? I'm I'm so into it. Um, okay, good. Yeah, I um, there's a there's a part in there where it's about this musician and about his soul and whatnot. Um, there's a part in there that um, the one of the band leaders uh, is talking with him after he has this kind of like very like um, profound experience and. He and she says, I looked up this quote. I'm hoping that it'll just stand on itself. I don't I don't think you have to see the movie to to have this quote be effective. Um, sure. I heard this. So she she tells him this great piece of advice. I, I heard this story about a fish. He swims up to an older fish and says, I'm trying to find this thing they call the ocean. The ocean, the older fish says, that's what you're in right now. This says the young fish. This is water. What I want is the ocean. <laughs> and I feel like that's like kind of like a, a similar um, thing to kind of what we're talking about of like this idea of like you, you can appreciate what you're in right now. It's like you're when you're in that local show, that is a, an, as real as it gets. You know what I mean? And I don't want it to be a downer like this. is so you have to settle for this. I right. mean, just yeah, appreciate yeah, totally, it while you're totally. there. Don't stop working. Don't stop trying to get better. Don't stop trying to expand what you're doing. I, I just think that as as you're doing that appreciate what you have because um a lot of times when you look back i mean there are so many big acts who start playing you know stadiums and stuff and they're like man i miss the intimacy of a small show you know i miss that i i I wish i could go back and play a club of 200 people that were just like in it you know right and you know they they can't i mean i mean theoretically they could but i mean it would it just wouldn't make any sense so i think that um I, I just don't I, I, I feel bad when artists are, are looking back and looking past what they're doing to towards what might be and not appreciating it. Right, right, right. Yes, totally. Oh, man, this is exact like 
I'm so fired up right now. I'm not going to sleep tonight. <laughs> um, <laughs> thank you so much. I know that we are went a little bit long. And so I really appreciate your time um, so much and the, your, all of your insights. Um, yeah. Thanks so much, Adam, for coming on. the. Podcast. No, thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. It's great. Um, feel free. Yeah, please, please, please send me the link when you got it so I can uh, listen to it and share it. Definitely. We'll do. Okay. So I'm going to end the podcast now and like sign off and then, but I'm not going to hang up and then we can, okay. I'll say bye for real, like a real person. Okay. That, <laughs> <laughs> all right. That is, uh, that is episode, like whatever episode we're on of the dog town podcast. Um, and so I really hope that you appreciated that. If you did, please go check out, um, go check out the book, the day alternative music died by Adam caress. That's C A R E S S. Um, if you just look it up online, you can find it. Um, or if you hit me up, I will let you borrow this copy of my own. Um, it's at the library too. Go check it out. Um, yeah, I cannot recommend it enough. Um, thanks Adam. And we'll catch you next time on the Dogtown podcast. The end.